0: This is Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning at Hightower Bethesda. Thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I hope arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for our Hightower Bethesda Divorce Series. I'm Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning, and today I have with me Jessica Markham of Markham Law Firm. And the topic we're going to be discussing is scratching the surfaces of nuances of being a federal employee and going through a divorce, which uh, after speaking with Jessica about this um, in preparation for this podcast, I was really, really blown away by some of the nuances that there are. So um, I, I say today that we're going to scratch the surface on nuances of being a federal employee and going through a divorce because my guest today, Jessica Markham of Markham Law Firm, is in the process of publishing through the ABA a 600-page book on the topic. So truly, we're going to just scratch the surface today, but I think we'll highlight some really good content. Um, Her book title is Representing Federal Employees in Divorce. And we're going to talk about some of the more common overlooked issues that Jessica sees in advising government employees that are going through divorce. Um, And so, you know, obviously this is a very topical uh, topical conversation to this area as there are 2.1 million federal government employees and understanding the nuances in particular in our local D.C., Maryland, Virginia area area. Um, is really important since we're home to a significant amount of government workers. So before I go too much on, I want to just give you a quick background on Jessica. She practices all aspects of family law in Maryland and D.C. She has many honors and awards to her credit, including Best Lawyer in America for both herself and her firm, as well as being named locally in Bethesda as a top divorce attorney. She started Markham Law Firm roughly five years ago, and they currently have five practicing attorneys, and they have two more attorneys on the way. Um, she has often sought for her expertise in working with federal employees going through divorce, which is really why she's here today and what we're going to talk about. Um, so we're going to try to talk about the t- kind of top issues um, that come to mind for her related to this topic. Uh, and the first one which I was really surprised about as it relates to health insurance and its ability to carry over to a divorcing client. Uh, Jessica, can you talk a little about this option that government employees have? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks for having me, by the way. I'm excited to talk to you about some of these topics. So with respect to the health insurance, um, you know, for most federal employees, their most significant asset is the pension. So um, most federal employees are either covered under um, the federal employee retirement system, which is called FERS for short, um, or CSRS, which is the old system pension. Not as many people are covered under that. It terminated, I think, in 1983. Um, so for those pensions, we have a few features of it that we have to pay attention to in divorce, and um those impact health insurance. So there's the employee annuity, which is the amount that the uh, retiree receives when they go into pay status. That's just the monthly amount that they get. Okay. Then there's also the survivor annuity. That's the monthly amount that's paid to the survivor, the spouse or the former spouse, if the employee dies first. Um, And there are a couple other features, but those are the most important ones that we really talk about um, and divide in a divorce.
0: And the ongoing, just to kind of clarify, the ongoing annuity, that's the one that people commonly refer to as a pension. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes.
1: So um, that amount is based on the employee's high three salary and the length of service. Um, so that amount is marital property under, you know, our local jurisdiction laws under most laws in any state that I, that I've heard of, I believe that's considered marital property, but that's the terminology we use around here. Um, so if the, um, what we call the alternate payee or the spouse of the employee or former employee, um, they, they can be entitled to a portion pursuant to a court order called, um, court order acceptable for processing. And they can get a portion of the employee's annuity every month sent to them directly. And then if they are designated as the survivor beneficiary, they can also receive a monthly amount after the employee dies. If they receive the monthly amount of the pension and they receive um, the amount of the survivor benefit, any amount over a dollar a month, they can remain on government health insurance. Um, they just have to pay the cost of it. So they pay the premium every month. The government doesn't subsidize that premium. And they can stay on that for the rest of their lives as long as they receive at least a dollar of the employee annuity every month and a dollar of the survivor annuity.
0: So basically what you're saying is they can get the access to the health care that they might not be able to get you know, elsewhere um, through the government. The government doesn't pay for it. They don't subsidize it. But since it is through the government, does it end up being lower premium costs than it would be, let's say, if they just, you know, try to go out on their own and purchase individual insurance plan?
1: Often it is. So it's a really great option for um, spouses that are unemployed or maybe um, are employed part-time or self-employed and they don't have access to a group plan. So essentially it's like they're an employee of the federal government. They get to choose from over 200 plans that the government participates in and they at least get the option of group rates and lots of different plans to choose from. Um, They do have to pay the the entire premium, like I said.
0: Okay. And how, how can this be helpful as well with children when children are involved?
1: So the employee um, always has the option, whether or not they have physical custody or legal custody, they always have the option of maintaining the child. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that's not an issue, and it's not tied to the pension.
0: Okay, gotcha. So that's separate. Yeah. Um, Okay. And can you can you just give me an example of how you know you've seen this used as maybe a negotiating trip, or you know how people use it?
1: Yeah. um, So there are lots of cases where, um, like I said, often the pension can be one of the most valuable assets and they don't always divide the pension in half. So imagine that you have a situation where a couple has been married 20 years and the entire uh, length of federal employment has been the same 20 years. In that case, Um, I practice in Maryland and DC. In that situation, the entire pension would be 100% marital. You can enter a court order that would essentially divide um, the pension using a formula. The numerator is the months of marriage um, that overlap with federal employment. The denominator is the total months of federal employment. And then you multiply that fraction times two or times 50% um, to get the fraction payable to the alternate payee. So um, in that case, you know, you're dividing the marital share equally. You also have to figure out how much of the survivor benefit the alternate payee is going to get. But sometimes you don't want to divide the pension in half. Sometimes um, the alternate payee spouse could have a 401k and they just want to keep their 401k. Um, And it could be that the federal employee has a TSP, but Um, The thrift savings plan account, but maybe there's not as much. So the alternate payee might say, well, I don't want to divide your pension. I want to keep my 401k and I want to keep the house, for example. So um, they could agree to waive the pension. Um, Mm -hmm. You could offset against other assets. But if that alternate payee spouse still needs the health insurance, they could just get a dollar a month of the employee annuity and a dollar a month of the survivor benefit and still have access to the health insurance. And they could decide to do that because it really has no negative impact on the employee at all. I right. mean, it's a dollar. It's not
0: financially meaningful, right. but it could be really meaningful in the context of the exactly you know, the partner. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So even in cases where there's a prenup, you could still agree to do the dollar. Um, So it's, you know, it's significant. I've even seen situations where they've said, well, you know, we've agreed to each keep our own everything in a prenup and I really want to keep it that way. And I've actually written in they'll reimburse them the dollar a month once a year, (sighs) but it's still a nice, nice thing to know that the option exists.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, One, one number you had mentioned is, is you said if they have been married for 20 years Um, when, when you are having this conversation about the pension, assets is there a like amount of years that someone is married that kind of no
1: no um so you're vested in a federal pension after five years okay um in um well basically even if you aren't fully vested it could still be marital property um And even if you only have a few years in, there's still some entitlement to a pension. So even if there's a short marriage, you can still divide it equally. Not everybody chooses to do that, Um, especially when people are young. They might say, well, I don't want to bother entering into a court order, submitting it to OPM, and then getting a small amount in 30 years when I finally decide to retire. Mm -hmm. Of course, if somebody enters a court order and they're nowhere near retirement age, they have to make sure they always keep their address updated with OPM so that OPM can find them and send them money eventually. So some people say, no, that seems too far off. It seems too speculative. I really don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, And they could waive.
0: Okay. Okay. Very helpful. Um, So, you know, kind of depends on the situation. Um, So another question that came up was, to get this benefit for the partner that was not employed by the government, does the does their partner who was employed by the government, do they still have to be employed by the government, or do they have to be living in order for for them to carry on this benefit?
1: They don't have to be currently employed. Okay. So, um, well, that's the case for basically if you have an entitlement to a FERS or a CSRS pension. Um, meaning you used to be employed, at a certain point when you get to retirement age, you can start collecting. If you're not currently collecting, but you're not working at the government, that's referred to as being a deferred retiree. Mm -hmm. If you have an entitlement to a CSRS pension and, say, for example, you left um, and you're not in pay status, if that former government employee dies, there's actually no pension at that point, so the alternate payee cannot get a survivor benefit. Um, believe it or not, uh, for a FERS employee, if they're a deferred retiree, you can still enter a court order to divide the pension and to divide the the survivor benefit.
0: Okay, Hopefully so there's that more, makes and sense. yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, there's more at this point. There's more FERS. There's uh, way
1: more FERS retirees at this point because. There are no new participants to CSRS I think since 1983 or 1984 or something like that. Okay. So at I mean you meet very few CSRS um, covered employees at that at this point and usually they're in at least in their very late 50s early 60s at the youngest. Um, and the big difference between CSRS and FERS is that CSRS employees didn't pay into Social Security in their government jobs. So if they have a social security entitlement it's from other employment.
0: right. Yeah we, we work with some clients that are on that and they have a much higher pension but then they, they don't get exactly. social security so um, well let's talk about because you brought it up a couple different um, times in terms of this kind of survivor uh, benefit survivor annuity options. Um, and this is something unique as well. So what does that mean really for mm-hmm. a government employee and then the spouse of one? Sure.
1: Okay, so I'll just give you, I'll try and use a few easy numerical examples. So um, say an employee is getting ready to retire, and their pension benefit is going to be $3,000 a month. Um, Their spouse is entitled, um, for first, to a 50% survivor benefit. That's the maximum. Um, And If the spouse is not going to be receiving that maximum survivor benefit, they have to sign something waiving it. So for FERS, the maximum is 50% of the employee pension. For CSRS, it's 55%. But let's pretend we're just talking about a FERS employee right now because 50% is easier than 55 do to do the math. (laughs) So imagine that the FERS uh, covered employee is entitled to $3,000 a month of a pension and she's about to retire. Um, her spouse would be entitled to a maximum survivor benefit of 50% of the 3000 which is $1,500 a month. So that means wife is going to retire, start getting $3,000 a month, and then if she dies before her spouse, her spouse starts getting $1,500 a month. However, it's not quite that easy because essentially you have to pay pay for this benefit. Um, the $3,000 a month, they have to reduce that amount to provide the $1,500 a month. So the cost of it, fortunately, in these pensions is really easy to determine. Unlike other employer-sponsored plans that are for private companies, those are usually much harder to determine. Um, In this case, it's basically 10%. I say basically because FERS, it's exactly 10%. CSRS, there's like a couple other tweaks in there, like $100 for the first such and such. And then, but it comes out to basically for all intents and purposes, 50%. So again, if we're talking about this woman employee that's covered by first, who's entitled to 3000 a month, if she wants her spouse to get 1500 a month, if she dies first, that means they're going to reduce her pension by 10%, which is 300. 300. So that makes the $3,000 pension really 2700. Um, And then the amount when she passes would be $1,500 a month. In a divorce context, you can negotiate how much of a survivor benefit the former spouse gets. So in this scenario, using these numbers, again, the maximum would be $1,500 a month. However, you can also negotiate how much or who's going to pay the $300 cost. So it can come entirely from wife. It can come entirely from the spouse. Um, it can be split in half or it can be paid in some other proportion. So if you have um, two former spouses, for example, still the maximum infers is 50 percent. So if you had a first spouse, they could get 25 percent, a second spouse, 25 percent.
0: Gotcha. OK, yeah. so that's a more complicated. But if if. We were using the three thousand dollar scenario, and the spouse is entitled to fifty percent of it. It would be fifteen hundred, exactly. And then they figure out the cost, like the you know three hundred dollars. Who's gonna basically absorb that? Exactly. Is that is that they figure that out in the future? So meaning like the three hundred dollars is gonna decrease one of their benefits. Or they split it in half and each of their benefits is decreased by 150.
1: So most jurisdictions consider not only the pension marital property, but the survivor benefit as a separate item of marital property. So you have to negotiate who gets the survivor benefit, whether somebody gets it at all, and who pays the cost of it. So that's something you have to negotiate in the divorce. And that is a very, very frequently overlooked.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I would imagine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So military, for example, you can't negotiate who pays it. You just ignore it and it comes off the top. Right. Um, But for federal government, one thing that's nice about it is you can negotiate who pays it. So you need to include that in either your divorce settlement agreement or you need to bring it to the attention of the court if you actually have a trial and the court needs to decide who pays it.
0: Right. Well, because over someone's lifetime that amount can be pretty meaningful as a reduction in a monthly payment that you're receiving. Exactly.
1: And once in a while we have situations where um, you have somebody that's actually retired and in pay status and the non-employee spouse says, okay, you know, I want a survivor benefit. And it turns out the um, employee is in pay status And the spouse has waived the survivor benefit at some point, signed something. And then we have to tell them in the divorce context, well, because they're in pay status, you can't now get one. Right. Because it's done. It's done. It's a done deal. Um, And so that can be problematic because, you know, as we know, from time to time when you're married, you just kind of sign things that your spouse asks you to sign. You may not read it.
0: (laughs) In this case, that could get you in a lot of trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: um, okay. And and you had also talked about remarriage restrictions, um, and you often see that either this is not addressed or not fully understood by the divorcing parties. You know, to your point about when you're signing paperwork, um, is can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the
1: remarriage restrictions are slightly different for CSRS FERS foreign service and military. So I don't want to belabor it too much because I would say anybody that is um, either an employee or a spouse with any of these plans involved needs to look up the exact remarriage restrictions for each, but they can be pretty draconian. So um, if there is a remarriage before age 55, you can lose a survivor benefit if you haven't been married 30 years Um, For foreign service, you can, if you're remarried before age 55, you can lose the pension and the survivor benefit. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So um, it's really important that you have an attorney that is familiar with these pensions. Um, Between all these plans, some of them if the second marriage ends in either death or divorce the benefits some of the benefits can be restored and some not so it's really important to just be cognizant of your specific plan your age length of your marriage and look mm-hmm. up the rules because you could lose the entire <laughs> the entire thing
0: yeah and and i know to this point because i've had conversations um, with clients that were not in the government, but there, there was some type of restriction about them remarrying as it related to alimony. And in their cases, they might be able to negotiate that with their, you know, partner with their spouse between their lawyers. Um, but in this case, they actually can't. Is that correct? Right. The yeah. Gover- the <laughs>
1: government does not care what you and your spouse agree, agree to separately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically, they just follow a court order. So you need to have a retirement benefit court order that tells the government what to do with the money, and that's all they care about. So that's you know one other example of that. For example, for, for example, is um, making sure that when the divorce is entered that the retirement benefits court order is entered at the time of the divorce that designates the survivor beneficiary. Because if there's lag time, if you actually get divorced, any previous beneficiary designation ends because people are designating their spouses. They're not designating their former spouses. So if they're divorced, they no longer have a spouse. And if Mm -hmm. there's no retirement court order in place, there's no survivor benefit. Oh, no. So sometimes people will get a divorce Their attorney will um, delay in entering the court order, and just because you and your spouse agreed that you would get a survivor benefit, again, the government doesn't care. If they don't have a court order on file, they won't pay it.
0: Right. I could imagine that that could definitely, and has definitely created some problems. Yes. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So another topic that you brought up that I thought was very interesting and is unique to the federal pension is um, two different pension government employees can be entitled to. Can you talk a little bit about this and the differences that have to be considered and evaluated? Um, this is this is basically the two different systems like the CSRS and the FERS that I'm referring to? Right.
1: So the civil service retirement system that I talked about earlier, that's referred to as the old system. Those employees did not pay into social security when they were working for the government. So like you said, their pensions are higher, but they don't have social security. Um, So there are cases that we have had where you have a CSRS employee with no Social Security, and then you have maybe a first covered employee or somebody with another type of a pension that they did pay into Social Security. So, for example, um, if you were to divide the CSRS pension in half, um, that employee would then have half their pension and no Social Security. If you were to divide the first pension in half, um, they would get half their first pension, half the other person's CSRS, and also get social security. Mm. So it's just um, when you're negotiating, you have to keep these things in mind. Mm. Um, if you've been married for over 10 years, you could claim somebody's social security file as their spouse and get half of whatever they were entitled to. But still, you could end up in a situation where one spouse has way more income than the other and you didn't think it through. Um, didn't anticipate it, and it sort of results in what feels quite unfair to people. Mm -hmm. So when you're negotiating, you have more more options available to you, and you can run numbers and actually see if you can perhaps divide the pensions differently so that one doesn't get a windfall.
0: Right. You just have to understand what all the pieces are of that puzzle. And I think sometimes people don't even really understand them themselves. Correct. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, like the Social Security thing I have always found to be a little mind-blowing, which is everything that we've been talking about as it relates to the pension is that, you know, you could split it 50-50. But what's interesting about Social Security is that, um, to your point, if people have been married for at least 10 years, they're eligible to half of their partner's Social Security. But it does not, in fact, diminish at all the Social Security of their partner, Correct. So, I like that's that's just always been very interesting yeah. to me and the fact that if they had like two or three wives um, I'm I'm sorry I'm assuming it's a wife or partners. <laughs> wife or husband, if they had two or three uh, partners that they had been married to for 10 years at least in each of the scenarios, all three of those people could get 50% of their social security benefit in addition to that person getting their full benefit. So it can actually be quite a lot of money. That's
1: correct. And that's also something that hasn't, doesn't get dealt with in the divorce. That's just according to federal law and state divorce laws can't impact federal law. So we don't even include that in our agreements, but it's very important to keep it in mind in your negotiations.
0: Right. Whereas, so I guess if somebody was on the CSRS, the older system, and they their partner was the working partner, let's say they were the non-working partner, Um, they would only be eligible for that annuity. They wouldn't be eligible for Social Security if their partner was never eligible for Social Security. Is that correct as well?
1: Hmm.
0: They didn't work, so they had never really accumulated, you know, credits toward the Social Security system themselves.
1: I think you're right. <laughs> I lost okay. track of who is <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Um, Okay. Yeah. I was just saying basically like if they, if their partners a part of the old. Yes. Um, CSRS, no, that's true. Yeah. That's and true. they didn't accrue. They don't exactly. have any social security benefits. That's because right. They just get the annuity. That's right. Then their partner can't make any claim absolutely. on social security unless they themselves had worked in a job you're where. Absolutely. Yeah. Correct. Like yes. where they had accrued credits towards social right. security.
1: And CSRS employees also don't have thrift savings plan accounts. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, there's also no um, defined contribution money.
0: Right. And just to clarify um, for anyone that might not be familiar, the thrift savings plan is um, the same thing as a 401k or a 403b. It's just how the federal government titles that particular account. They call it the thrift savings plan. So, and I know exactly. we could probably have a no, whole another conversation about some of the nuances related yeah. <laughs> to being the TSP versus a retirement account, traditional, but um, you know, for all intents purposes they're Correct. very similar. Yeah, that's a good way to
1: put it. Um one thing that's interesting about that is you actually can have in unlike a an IRA, for example, where you might have a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA, you can have a TSP account that has different sub accounts in it. And one sub account can be Roth money and one sub account can be traditional retirement money.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's probably a newer thing, but yeah, probably for at least the past 10 is, years, they, yeah. they had that ability. Yeah. yeah. And then of course for divorcing, you have to kind of look at those buckets. Yes, separately exactly. As well. Um, okay. Well, uh, is there anything else? I know we covered a lot of content and we got into some good detail um, but any kind of final thoughts or anything that we didn't cover that you might think uh, is relevant? Well, I think some commonly
1: overlooked items are um, also thinking about cost of living adjustments and um, supplemental annuities that FERS employees can be entitled to. So the supplemental annuity are, that's available for certain class of employees that are entitled to early retirement. So it's people that generally in extra stressful or hazardous jobs that they're the kind of jobs that you can't have somebody that's sort of, I don't know, elderly working at it. Let's put it that way. So they sort mm-hmm. of entice them to retire. Um, they can retire before age 62. So those employees, um, there's the speci- specific list of them um, in the statute. Those employees can get a supplemental annuity that's payable until age 62, which is supposed to increase their pension to basically make it as if they were already receiving Social Security. So that can be many thousands of dollars a year, and that is something that most people don't think about. And right now, um, OPM's policy on what to do with that is sort of up in the air it used to be that if they were not divided specifically in the court order, they did not get divided. They a couple years ago made a retroactive change to their policy and started dividing the supplemental annuities when people were silent about it. There's a big up, there was a big uproar about that, and they're reviewing that right now. So best practices if the if if you're in a situation where one of the parties um, is in this special category of jobs, which they would be very clear that they were <laughs> right, right, yeah. um then you want to make sure that you're very intentional about whether you're dividing the supplemental annuity because it could be thousands of dollars a month so you want to either divide it or not divide it you don't want to be in the category of people that is silent and leaves right. it up to policy changes right maybe
0: you didn't even know about it or didn't understand that right
1: so um then same thing with cost of living adjustments um if court orders are silent um Provided that it's not a fixed monthly lump sum in your court order that you're getting. Um, if you're getting a fractional, either a fraction or per, a percentage or based on a formula, then you're going to get cost of living adjustments. But you just want to make sure that you're intentional about it. You don't want to give your spouse cost of living adjustments if you didn't mean to. You don't want to waive them if you didn't mean to. So, um You know, people are receiving these pensions for many, many years out in the future, and a cost of living adjustment can be meaningful to most people.
0: How do you um, protect for that? It's just in the verbiage that you are very specific and intentional about. You
1: say alternate payee gets his or her share, proportional share of cost of living adjustments, or you say they don't.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah, that could make a huge difference over time.
1: Yeah. So things like that, just you want to be extremely detailed and intentional about every aspect of the pensions. Um, You don't want to be in a situation, what many people do is they say, okay, we're going to divide it. What does that mean? Right.
0: (laughs) Divide what exactly? Because there are multiple, you know, things to take into consideration. Exactly. Okay. Well, this has been very important. Informative, And I know if it highlights one thing to me, it's how important it is that you work with an expert in advising a federal employee community going through the divorce because there are a lot of nuances that need to be considered. Um, and then they have a huge, they can have a huge potential financial impact. Um, so at Hightower Bethesda, we're all about helping people make smarter financial decisions. And I think you have uh, definitely provided some context for that, and I wanna thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with High Tower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with High Tower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through High Tower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.